Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. A better way to start today's message than with the blessing of our children. Because children especially young children, still have eyes to see the sacred in the ordinary. If you haven't done so lately, take a walk with a little one. And here I'm talking really young, say two or three years old, where they're still really close to the ground. And don't do it for exercise, because you will stop every few steps to examine something new, something wondrous that in your eyes is insignificant and ordinary. A dull rock, not even that colorful. A stick that must be picked up and carried. An ant that is moving at the speed of an ant. You'll be tempted to hurry the little one along, to remind her of your destination, to pick him up so you can get somewhere to do something. And unless intentionality and lots of patience have been prayed into your day, you will miss the sacred moments of being fully present in the ordinary. Advent is an invitation to find the sacred in the midst of the ordinary, to awaken, to slow, to pay attention and to truly grasp the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us, the hope and reality of glory even in the most mundane and routine of life. I've heard many messages about how we have sanitized the Christmas story with pictures of a lovely little nativity, cherub angels, and a serene holy family surrounded by light. And such words are right and needed. But I wonder if in trying to counteract the picture of the perfect, we have ended up sensationalizing the story of Christmas in another way. We talk about a ramshackle stable filled with stinky animals and the despair of a lonely teenager far from home giving birth in the worst of circumstances. And then we counteract it with the glory of the angels and the brilliance of the star. We paint a very bad world that was entered by a very good God. And it was. It is. But in sketching the ugliness of the scene, And then the beauty of God become man. I wonder if we miss the very essence of Emmanuel. God with us. Do we miss the everydayness, the routine, the mundane, the ordinary that was ever present even in that first Christmas. And that is so much of the world we're called to live in. Do we struggle to find God in the here and now because we fail to recognize the beauty in the simplicity of the ordinary? I wonder. Let's look at the Christmas story again through the eyes of the ordinary. From Luke 2, 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, 
who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Christ was born in the in-between. Christ was born into the ordinary. Yes, the mighty Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she was chosen to be the mother of God. And an angel told Joseph in a dream that the child she would bear was conceived of the Holy Spirit. These are truly miraculous examples of the divine interacting with common man. But nine plus months had passed in which Mary and Joseph had to do life, ordinary life. Joseph, a carpenter, worked in his trade to provide food and shelter. Mary experienced morning sickness, cravings, and watched her belly button turn inside out, just as every pregnant woman does. They lived as part of the mundane. And now they traveled to do what we all must do as part of this world, register for a census, which would have been used to evaluate their taxes. They paid taxes. They traveled to Bethlehem. We sing, oh, little town of Bethlehem, but I wonder if we truly fathom how insignificant, how ordinary Bethlehem was. True, it was the birthplace of King David, but at the time of Jesus' birth, few gave this sleepy town of just 200, perhaps 300 people any notice. Attention instead would have gone to Jerusalem, just five to six miles away, the sacred center of the Hebrew faith the home of the temple, both the economic and spiritual center of the region. Everyone, even the magi from another land and religion, knew that that is where God was likely to show up. That is where the sacred happened, not in Bethlehem. As I looked through commentaries for some insight into this passage, I was especially sobered by their thoughts in light of historical data Regarding verses 6 and 7. First, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, I've always imagined Mary in the clutches of hard labor during the last part of their journey. And um, then Joseph desperately knocking on doors trying to find a place so that baby could get born off, the, off of the street. And it was it's really filled with drama. But apparently, what is translated while they were there does not indicate the birth was imminent on their arrival to Bethlehem, but rather that they had been in Bethlehem for some unspecified amount of time prior to Mary's going into labor. It's less dramatic, more routine. A tired of being pregnant mama anxiously awaiting the baby's arrival. And what about that inn, you know, inn after inn filled to the brim, so Joseph settles for a broken down barn or musty cave. Apparently, the word translated in in the King James is better translated guest room, like in the version we read. In fact, a totally different word would have been used in that day for a commercial inn. You see, Bethlehem was probably far too small of a town, and it was not found on any major road, so there was not much likelihood of a real inn. Much less this picture of Joseph knocking on door after door after door. Besides, Joseph probably owned, he or his family probably owned land there. So this is a good chance that there was family there. 
Scholars best guess is that Jesus was born in the home of relatives or friends, a home that was crowded with family due to the census, so there was no room in the guest room. Therefore, Mary and Joseph were delegated to a more common area, perhaps beneath the home where the animals were housed, consequently the manger. Certainly not ideal, but maybe not horrendous. Could it be that the scene of the first Christmas was more ordinary, less spectacular than we want to believe? Does that make the scene any less sacred? God became man and dwelt among us right there in the everydayness of Bethlehem. And most of Jesus' life was lived in the ordinary. We love Jesus' miracles. But between Jesus' birth and ministry, there was 30 years of ordinariness, routine, everyday work-to-live life. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy states, He slipped into our world through the back roads and outlying districts of one of the least important places on earth. He grew up in the home of a carpenter for a little Middle Eastern village of Nazareth. After his father Joseph died, he became the man of the house and helped his mother raise the rest of the family. He was an ordinary workman, a blue-collar worker. He did all this for us, to be one of us, to arrange for the delivery of his life to us. If he were here today, he could be a clerk or accountant in a hardware store, a computer repairman, a banker, an editor, a doctor, waiter, teacher, farmhand, lab technician, or construction worker. He could run a house cleaning service or repair automobiles. In other words, if he were to come today, he could very well do what you do. He could very well live in your apartment or house, hold down your job, have your education and life prospects, and live within your family, surroundings, and times. None of this would be the least hindrance to the eternal kind of life that was his by nature and becomes available to us through him. Our human life, it turns out, is not destroyed by God's life, but is fulfilled in it and it it alone. The obviously well-kept secret of the ordinary is that it is made to be receptacle of the divine. A place where the life of God flows. I love that. The well-kept secret of the ordinary is that it is made to be a receptacle of the divine. That is the message of Advent. It's the message of Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Our King of Kings, who became of the, in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of this, we are invited to both experience the divine in the ordinary and to become the divine to the ordinary. We are called not to the dramatic or sensational, but to the real and earthy, and organic, because believe it or not, that is where the God with us life is found. Have you ever noticed how Jesus used the most ordinary things to illustrate the most sacred truths? 
sparrows to emphasize our extreme value. Wildflowers to remind us of his perfect care. Salt and light, fishing nets and vines, camels, needles, sheep, shepherds, farmers, seeds and narrow doors. And yes, the bread and the wine, the table. Not a rare delicacy to house his very presence, but part of every Middle Eastern meal every single day. This is my body broken. This is my bloodshed. Mysterious. Divine. Transformational. Sacred. In the midst of the ordinary. And if we do not live, if we do not learn to find sacred in the midst of the ordinary, then God is insignificant except for those rare burning bush experiences. We lust for the spectacular. We create drama to feel alive. And so we live dead to God's work in us and around us in everyday life. Only when we awaken to the sacred and the ordinary do we realize the truth of Isaiah 57.5. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy places, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Yes, God is in the holy places. The mountains and the ocean shores where I love to commune with him. He is in the magnificent cathedrals and the set-apart times of solitude and silence. But he's also here in the contrite and lowly, the ordinariness of your spouse who doesn't always listen and understand, and your child who whines and is slow to obey, and the person at the drive-through window who gets your order wrong. God is in the breaths you take in and out. And the food that nourishes you. He paints his beauty in each sunset and wildflower and his humanity. In each runny nose we wipe and belly laugh we share with a friend. But too often we miss it. I knew I was speaking about this. And yet as I was praying for God to open my eyes to the sacred in the midst of the ordinary... I found myself frustrated by the ordinary demands of the season and ministry and family and just living life that was keeping me from writing this message. Instead of spying and holding near the sacred and the ordinary, I was belittling the ordinariness that seemed to be keeping me from experiencing the divine so I could profoundly share it with you. And my guess is, Most of you can relate to my frustration. Trevor Hudson, a South African minister I enjoy, wrote in an Advent reflection called Awakening to Advent, how easily we succumb to sleepwalking through our lives. We go from experience to experience, encounter to encounter, event to event on autopilot, showing little awareness that Jesus is present and active in our midst. Advent is a time to wake up. To awaken is to live in a constant state of awareness and attentiveness. 
so that we do not miss Jesus, who is ever-present and ever-active. So what are some practical ways we can wake up during this season and throughout our lives to the sacred in the midst of the ordinary? Here's a few suggestions. First, let those people that are more attuned to the sacred guide you. Here I mean spiritual directors and mentors and teachers, but also artists, musicians, poets, authors, playwrights, and children. I'll never forget the first time I saw the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder. I think I was nine or ten, and at my school, the elementary students got to attend the afternoon dress rehearsal of the high school play just to be before it opened to the public. I was riveted, especially by the scene where Emily, a young woman who we watch grow up in the ordinary little town of Grover's Corners, dies as a young mother. She is given the chance to go back and live one more day on earth. She picks a nondescript birthday, but can only bear a few moments of the day as she realizes how while physically alive, she and those she knew and loved were dead to the eternal in each day. She cries, it goes so fast. We don't have time to look at one another. I didn't realize. So all of that was coming and going and we never noticed. Wait, one more look. Goodbye. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corners. Mama and Papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking and Mama's sunflowers and food and coffee and new iron dresses and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. Oh, Earth, you are too wonderful for anyone to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life why they live it every, every minute? To these words, the stage manager, who is the narrator and guide throughout the play, responds, No. Saints and poets, maybe. They do some. I saw that play nearly 50 years ago. And I still cannot read it and recall it without crying. Perhaps we can never live in such a way that we realize life every, every minute. But oh, how we need the saints and the poets to remind us. So listen to music that stirs you. Read a book that speaks life to your soul. Pause and look at the beauty of a painting or photograph. And stop and really look, gaze at a sunset or a child. Let these things and people awaken you to the sacredness of ordinary life. Second, practice the discipline of thankfulness. I love a book by Anne Voskamp called 1,000 Gifts, A Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are. In this book, uh, she takes up a challenge to list 1,000 gifts she receives from God in the ordinary routines of life. As a farm wife, a mother of five children, a member of a small rural church, and as part of a family that has and is dealing with loss and pain. Through the list of recognizing God and offering thanks, she finds a beauty and depth of life. She finds sacred in the ordinary. 
She says, it is the brave who focus on all things good and all things beautiful and all things true, even in the small, who give thanks for it and discover joy even in the here and now. They are the change agents who bring fullest light to all the world. Christmas is just over a week away. How might these days change if each night you jot down a gift God has given you and give thanks? Will you hear the laughter of a child in a new way? Might wrapping a gift be a time to acknowledge both that you have the means to give a gift and the beauty of the one to whom the gift is intended? Let the Christmas goodie that you eat at work be the taste of God's delight in satisfying you with good things and give thanks. Third, ask God to open your eyes to the sacredness of your fellow human human beings and open yourself to being the sacredness of those God brings into your path. Look into the eyes of your child, your spouse, or a good friend. Really look. You'll probably end up laughing But you might also glimpse the divine image of God who created them. Notice the barista who makes your coffee or the clerk at the store and ask them how their day has been. Then really listen to their answer. Talk at the dinner table about how you might share God's love in some tangible way with someone less fortunate and then do it. And fourth and last, see each ordinary task of your day as an invitation into the sacred. This may seem like a little silly game at first, but stick with it. There's a delightful book by Tish Harrison Warren called Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. In it, she walks through a routine day of waking, making beds, brushing her teeth, losing her keys. She goes throughout the whole day connecting each to such sacred experiences as baptism, worship, confession, shalom, Sabbath, and more. She suggests that it is often the unseen and unsung ways we spend our time that form us. So we need to recognize them, examine them. Sometimes change them, but most often do them with an eye to God and for God. She says, everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. But what I am slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. So here's to doing dishes this Advent season. Now, it's easy to talk about how the sacred in the midst of the, is in the midst of the ordinary, but I think we learn and often are inspired more by hearing from those like us going about their routine, maybe drudgery of life, who recognize the sacred. So we're going to have right now a brief time of words of the people where we're inviting you to share with us where you saw or experienced the sacred this week. Now, I encourage you to be brave, but also brief. A few words, just a sentence. Keep it short, but trust that God may want to use you to encourage others. So there's going to be two mics. I think somebody's going to raise them up for us right now. And without further ado, rush toward the microphone. (laughs) 